The following episode of TOEFOP is rated M.A. It may contain Batman references, time travel references, sexual references, lost trains of thought, and mild coarse language. TOEFOP advises that the program is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15 or anyone who enjoys succinct, coherent conversation that might actually have a point. Minors must be accompanied by a parent, guardian or priest. This is John Deke speaking. Everyone relax, this is Tofop. I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson, hello. Hello, Happy New Year, Charlie. Happy New Year to you, sir. How long do we say Happy New Year for? It is uh, January the 13th in Australia when I'm recording this, so it's January the 12th in America where you are. Uh, How far into the new year do you still belt out a Happy New Year? Is it the next time you see a person? Yes. Every email I have sent in the last two or three days is to someone I haven't spoken to since 2017, and it's also, I even sent you a message when I started with Happy New Year, I believe. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. I'm quite interested in how long, because for me, I give up on New Year within days of New Year. I'm, I'm not celebrating right. Happy, in fact, in fact, to be honest, I really only dish out a little couple of Happy New Years, like in the sort of post-12 celebrations when you run into someone in the street or you get a cab home. That's, they're getting a Happy New Year from me. And after that, I'm just like, fucking take care of your own New Year. Who am I to tell you whether your year should be happy or not? What do you care, the opinion of a stranger? That's the problem with this world. We're too busy worrying about other people's happiness and not concentrating on our own. You know what? I just choose to shut the fuck up and let the people have whatever sort of year that they want to have. <laughs> so what would, the, what would your, your new missive be? Like, have a mediocre new year? Have a whatever new year. No, I'm choosing to say nothing, Charlie. I'm choosing to say right. that either your fate is already predetermined, you, you know, if you believe that all time, you mm. know, exists at once and everything that it's happened has already happened or is happening concurrently, but we just understand it in a linear fashion, then who am I to suppose whether your new yep. year will be happy or not? What you're really saying is, hey, complete stranger, I wish you well. I would rather just say that. I'd rather just get it out on Front Street and say, hey, complete stranger, I wish you well. When I used to go to church, there's a moment during a mass where you stop and you turn and you shake hands or acknowledge the people around you and you say, peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you. And I always thought that was kind of like a lot of effort. That's, like, that's, that's a lot of pressure to put on someone for the next week, right? What, that they should have peace? Yeah, peace be with you. Because it's like, well, you know, man, like life's stressful. Like I go home, my wife's on my back, you know, I've got to take the kids to school. Like I'm not getting a lot of peace. I've barely got any time to myself. I can't even go to the bathroom. Can't you, <laughs> you wish, know what? Just lower the bar a little. Right, yeah. Just, you just turn to me and say, I hope you get to have a shit with the door closed. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, we feel like peace is aiming a little bit high. We just want you to have five minutes of peace so you can read the newspaper, take that morning dump without the kids coming in and annoying you. That's what I wish you for this week. Specific bits of peace. How do you go around Christmas time then? Are you Merry Christmasing? You know what? I didn't see anyone around Christmas because Amy was away and I was like uh, staying at home pretty much. So I, I mm. realized that over that period, I was incredibly 
unsocial. So I didn't have to do a lot of like complete stranger greetings. And the other thing I mm. noticed is even when I went out in the world, because you know when you're out in the world by yourself, and particularly if you're mm. living alone by yourself for a while, like I tend to just end up wearing my headphones everywhere. So I'm listening to the cricket or a podcast or whatever. So even when you're out in the world, you're not really engaging too much with the world. I've taken a, I've changed my habit with that. I used to do that as well, wear headphones everywhere. But then I felt like I wasn't engaging <laughs> with the world around me. So now I ta- now it's my special challenge is whenever I'm on like taking a cab or an Uber somewhere or whatever, it's like, don't check my phone, engage with the driver or look out the window or take note of where you are. Because I found that I was, I, my brain was not taking a breath all day because if I wasn't working on something, I was taking information in. So now I choose to kind of, indulge the more mundane activities without distraction maybe like doing the dishes or something i'll listen to a podcast but i used to, it got to a point where i wouldn't even allow myself to shower without taking information in like i i would switch my my iphone over to my ue boom speaker and take it to the bathroom and play something while i was in the shower so i could continue to distract myself from the pain of, 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 the, of the present moment well i absolutely understand what you're saying and i actually think that's a really good thing to do and that's actually part of what I'm going to try to do a bit more this year because last year during Gruen and I've been doing it a couple of years but I stopped reading at replies you know like as in like if you post something on social media I just don't read any of the follow-up to it and I did it during Gruen like as a way of just like you know keeping in my own sort of feedback loop but then I realized that it was really freeing up my time but it also felt like it was freeing up my mind you know you weren't getting Mm. involved in all these little petty squabbles about things that were really unnecessary to the rest of your life you know you didn't have that time to spend with your friends and family because you'd been too busy online trying to prove a point to a person you were never going to meet in real life and I think that those things Mm. or just feeling bad for the rest of the day because some person that you're never going to meet who if you check their feed for just one second has like 90 opinions you'd never agree with has said something Mm. that's got inside your head so I felt like just taking that out was really great but what I have noticed that the flow-on effect of that has been is I'm not actually checking Mm. Facebook or Twitter anywhere near as much I used to say to people oh you know I use it as a research tool as a news tool but what I realized is having taken away the element of following it following it up I don't actually use it that much. Like I'll check it right. in a cab or I'll check it, you know, if I do have like, you know, some time that I have to fill in somewhere. But other than that, I'm not checking it at all. And I feel fantastic about it. But the opposite is the podcast. I reckon I'm listening to more podcasts now because I'm walking around doing a lot of exercise. Yeah, right. I'm podcasting. I'm doing these trial shows in Byron Bay. And yesterday I went for a swim at the beach and the water was beautiful. It was this like perfect day. And I'm out in the middle of the ocean swimming. And in my head, I was going, the only thing that would make this better <laughs> is if I had waterf- waterproof headphones and I could be listening to a podcast while I was going for a swim. You sound like a guy who quit cigarettes but now smokes a vape pen like a fucking demon. <laughs> like, have you seen those dudes? Maybe it's not so big in Australia, but where I, being in Europe the last couple of um, weeks, seeing them like what vape pens are doing over there, especially in a big sort of hard drinking, smoking town like Glasgow. When I was in Glasgow, I went to a few bars and everyone there was on the vape pens. But man, the intensity with which they were smoking that vape pen. I'm like, even if like a vape pen is 90% better than cigarettes, the intensity with which you're smoking that vape pen is making up for the shortfall. There is a certain, uh, you've never seen anyone casually smoke a vape pen. 
No. Like, there's two ways that you see people smoke a vape pen. One is, like, like, like you've said, super, super aggressively because they just kind of feel like they have to make up for the fact that it's not a real cigarette by really sucking it into their lungs or <laughs> sneakily. They're the two mm. ways you smoke them. The other one is someone trying to just get a smoke in somewhere they shouldn't or a really quick one between something. So there's only two modes of vape pen smoking. You rarely see someone just casually at a party, you know, just having like a casual vape. Yeah, it's not like, I mean, you think about like the history of Hollywood or whatever, and there's always a glamorous image of like a Rita Hayworth type with a cigarette, maybe in a stem or something. You don't have that elegance with the vape pen because they still look like the sonic screwdriver. It's not quite as sexy for James Dean to have a tight T-shirt and a vape pen up on his <laughs> arm under his T-shirt. Well, I met this one dude at this bar in Glasgow who had his vape pen, and this thing literally looked like if it was a bad sci-fi movie from the 80s and this was like their communicator or something, like it was, you know, it had this kind of shiny aqua exterior with like multiple lights that shone up and this was a high-end one where you could control the yeah. exact temperature of, uh, of, the, of the embers or whatever to, you know, burn the vape. But then he showed me like, it's become all sort of um, uh, uh, gizmatized, I guess, because you can get all these little attachments and accessories. He showed me this little, it was like a bandolier of like vape oil that he... You know, like shook out of this little kind of container and stuff. I was like, oh man. Like it's, I can see we are now entering the world that we used to watch in sci-fi films as a kid, yet we're completely misusing the technology. Oh, that's absolutely the case. Like we're developing all these amazing things. And the way that uh, science fiction would speculate about them was that we would develop these things and as a world would use them in the most useful way. But it's not. Mm. It's sex robots. It's sex robots yeah. and vape pens. That's what we're putting our technology into. I mean, a lot of people have sent this in to us, uh, but recently they've talked about they're building soft robots, uh, like artificial muscle and stuff. So these robots, their physiology and the way their bodies move will resemble like biological creatures. And the whole time I'm like, Westworld came out last year. We all saw that, right? Like they were flexible robots with muscles and stuff. And we saw like... Why are we so tone deaf to what's going on? I think Silicon Valley people uh, watch all those movies with the sound down. So all they do is just watch it. They go, oh my God, cool yeah. robots. Oh my God, Terminators look cool. You're yeah. like, hang on, you should turn up the volume of this film. He's not the hero. It's like I've met a few people who've seen The Wolf of Wall Street and to them it's this fucking, it's like a, an aspirational film. It's like, isn't this great? Didn't this guy like make it? And it's like, I think you've completely <laughs> missed the point. <laughs> Well, I imagine there's got to be some meth cooks who got into it after Breaking Bad, surely. Yeah, pro yeah, I guess so. Did that make it look cool? It didn't. I mean, Breaking Bad, it was all seemed terrible. Like, he was never yeah. at any point, did he get a point where he could relax? It's just like the rabbit hole got deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah, but this is the point that we're making, Charlie. In Terminator or Westworld, there's a lot of downsides as well. People seem to be ignoring those downsides. And I think in the same <laughs> way as they do in those movies that they would do that with like Breaking Bad. If you're someone who was already thinking about starting your own pop-up meth business, I think mm. you would see that as aspirational and inspirational rather than you'd overlook some of the downsides. You'd be like, oh, well, I won't make those mistakes. I remember in the early 2000s or just after Fight Club came out, there were reports that like, you know, in cities all over the world, young men were getting together and forming their own fight clubs. They were so like influenced by that film. And again, it's like, wow, 
you totally missed the point of the movie. Those men were lost and broken. Like, it was pathetic what they were doing. Like, Tyler Durden was the product of a diseased mind. <laughs> it is a really good point, isn't it? It's like, like uh, you know, watching uh, the third Mad Max film and starting a Thunderdome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess UFC is not far away from Thunderdome, right? Yeah, it's it, it's yeah. I guess so. I mean, Thunderdome is to the death. I guess it's it, well, it's just a matter of time with UFC, right? Well, I mean, I imagine at some stage these sports, and I don't know, has there been people die in the UFCs? I don't know. We, you know what? Nick Cody is the guy to ask about this. He's been on our show a few times, and and he's a big UFC fan. I mean, from what my minimal knowledge of UFC, from what I'm told, is it's actually in ways safer than boxing because of the the thin gloves thing. Like you know, in boxing, you can do more blunt force trauma, you can hit harder, but when you're just hitting someone with your knuckles, you're more likely to break your hand than do damage to them. Yeah, but it's still not as safe as, say, not doing UFC. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, just the thing you're like, oh, what's well, technically safer than boxing? Oh, yeah, that other thing that looks really unsafe. That's like saying that, like, you know, skydiving is technically safer than bungee jumping. Okay, as of April 2014, there have been five recorded deaths resulting from sanctioned contests. Well, that's okay. Only five people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's not thunderdome numbers i suppose like they they would want you know more regular deaths than that although i was uh when i was uh away i, I met a few sailors when i was staying with jem's dad on his boat he introduced me to a few of his neighbors who are all these people who they literally live on the water they just sort of dock somewhere for a few months and they'll sail somewhere else and one of the sailors was um saying, oh, you're from Australia, so you remember the Hobart to Sydney, uh, Sydney to Hobart race in 1998? Do you remember that? Where like 120 boats launched and only 58 made it to Hobart. And it's like deaths, it was one of the, like, the greatest sort of like disasters. And in professional sport, like if I told you that the next like Grand Prix, <laughs> less than half the cars would make it and there would be multiple deaths, do you think they'd get a sponsor for the next year? This is the worst thing about human beings is I have no interest in watching the Sydney to Hobart or the Grand Prix and the only thing that would make me interested in either of them is if you told me beforehand that half of the cars weren't going to make it and there'd probably be a couple of deaths. I'd be like, I probably should tune in to see this. How was your trip? Tell us about yeah, your trip. Yeah, it was, it was good. All right, so it was a bit of an unexpected holiday. Um, I... The, the original plan was Gemma and I were going to leave from LA and go visit her family in the UK and do Christmas there. But then she had to go back to Australia for work. So I had a week to kill and I had this flight to London. So I was like, well, I might as well, once you're in London, you know, you're hop, skipping a jump to Europe. So I went to Amsterdam for eight days. Um, it's a good city. <laughs> I like Amsterdam. What did you do in Amsterdam? I've never been to Amsterdam. Tell me about it. It's beautiful. It's, um, well... Uh, Amsterdam, the, the city, it's, it's a little horseshoe shaped. You've seen the photos of the canals and stuff. So it's just these rings, horseshoe rings that go out. And it's, uh, it's one of those kind of cities where you can walk everywhere. There's public transport. It's like, it's like a New York or, or, or London or whatever. It's just like, very good for a tourist because you don't really need to. It's easy to get around. It's well laid out. Um, but the, it is such a kind of chill city. Like... There, there is something about that place. There's something about Europe. Having spent like a bit of time in LA and sort of getting my head around this place and then going to somewhere like Europe where like you see these sort of buildings that are hundreds of years old and you go to these galleries and see works by these great masters and stuff and you start to notice a, an aesthetic to the city. 
like that can only happen over hundreds and hundreds of years of development and what the feeling I got from Amsterdam is the priority they put on kind of intellectual thinking and artistry and creativity and open discussion like it was amazing like the the amount of art galleries I went to and um, there was like a Banksy exhibition while I was there uh, but the most sort of uh, interesting one I, I thought was uh, this exhibition called Body Works. You may have heard of it. It's this doctor who used to have that show on SBS where he'd do those live autopsies. I can't remember his actual name, but they gave him the nickname like Dr. Death or something like that. But he developed this method of body preservation um, uh, to help people like study anatomy. And so in Amsterdam, there's this exhibition called Body Works, which is all these people who have donated their bodies to science They've had their bodies reconstructed or parts of their bodies in this exhibition, which you can go around and it's like each level of the exhibition is sort of relating to a different body part or a body function. But there's this kind of more high-minded uh, theme to the whole exhibition because it's called happiness. So you're walking around this exhibition looking at all these kind of cadavers. Some of them are sort of fully formed, like, you know, uh, skinless cadavers with maybe like the chest exposed so you can see the organs and stuff and others are just body parts. But there's this kind of concurrent theme running through the exhibition, which is like, this is the biological function of humans. This is how the body works. And, you know, if you uh, treat it like this, then this is the outcome, you know, so they'll show like a fatty liver. If you treat it like this, this is a healthy liver. Um, but none of that is important if you don't have the mental side of things down. And, you know, they sort of make this connection between sort of physical health and happiness, but also being happy with where you are and, and where you live in the moment you're in. It's kind of like a, a mindfulness sort of philosophy. Um, it was pretty amazing. Like they did, the, one, of the le, one of the flaws uh, is about um, areas in the world that have the highest life expectancy. So there's like six regions across the globe where, you know, the average age is up into the high 80s, whatever. Some people make it over 100. And all the people that they interviewed and, um, you know, the displays that they had were saying that, the key to it is to stay involved and active in life. Like we have this system set up at the moment, the idea of retirement or finishing up where people just stop. Like it's very much based around like earning an income or what your working life is. And then once your, or your family life. And once those two things cease, that you sort of, well, what's your relevance? Whereas these countries where they have the high life expectancy, all these people were senior citizens who were still very active in the community they were active physically, like be it exercise or just, you know, the nature of where they live. They had to be physically active. Um, sounds, sounds a lot like old person propaganda to me, Charlie. <laughs> Clearly, it's the grey lobby who've got behind this and they're putting their grey messages through this <laughs> modern art that we're meant to respect old people and still involve them in our society rather than shipping them off to retirement homes and treating them like the fossils that they actually are. This is clearly propaganda and you've fallen for it, Charlie. <laughs> the loony left. <laughs> well, it's kind of ironic because I was on holiday and I... look. I, I, I'm pretty disciplined with how I eat and drink, but this last five weeks, the floodgates were opened. It was just whatever I wanted to eat, whatever I wanted to drink at whatever time. So I right. was enjoy, enjoying Christmas myself. Christmas holidays period. Exactly. 
But then going to this exhibition and seeing what like, you know, alcohol does to the liver, seeing what cigarette smoke does to the lungs, seeing what excess fat and sugar does to the body was like, oh, exhibition, your message is getting to me, but I still want to enjoy my holiday. Right. You know what the thing is? I feel like there's a lot of messages in this exhibition that I would just not be happy with. I feel like Like I don't actually want to. uh, Well, I mean, firstly, I actually think I would find it a little bit creepy. Like, it it felt like a horror movie to me. It felt like, you know, the idea of, like, you could make a movie about some kids getting locked in that exhibition on, like, you know, Halloween night or Friday the 13th night or something like that. And then it would be this kind of, like, you know, suggested thriller of there might be, like, bodies coming to life or there might be, like, a killer inside or there might be, like, you know, and then you'd have, like, the kids being picked off one by one and then you'd see, you know, a bit of their foot or them sort of, like, up on the wall. It has that kind of bit of a creepy feel to me. Secondly... It feels a little like... To be honest, like, they don't shy away from the creepiness. Like, the way that the kind of cadavers are positioned and placed is artistic. Like, uh, you know, there's one sort of exhibition where uh, it's like a rock, wa- rock face, a rock wall, and the, the body is stepping away from the rock wall and its skin is pulled off the body, sticking to the rock wall. So it's coming out with its exposed muscles and stuff, like stepping out of its skin like a like a caterpillar would or a snake or something like that. So it's a kind of like a fairly confronting image. And then there's another one, which is a female corpse, like, you know, skinless, muscle show, like stomach exposed, so you can see the organs, sitting on a swing. <laughs> like, they are not like uh, like just sort of sterile, propped up, you know, facing forward, like, they're active, but that's sort of part of the um, part of the point. Is they're showing the bodies in action as well, like the you know the way muscles contract and move when you when you, your body takes different positions. You know what uh, I would say as well, though. There is a part of me that feels like the lessons I would learn from it the mistakes have already been made so far in the past that I can't correct them. So really it'd just be like, this is definitely happening to you rather than you going, you can do anything about this. Like, it's like, you know, when you were reading a choose your own adventure book when you were a kid and like you realize you'd gone down the wrong path and you died in that one or it went to the bad ending. You just flip back to where you took that choice (laughs) and keep going. I can't flip back to my like early twenties where I could have made better decisions about my health. Like that damage is already done. So this exhibition is just rubbing this shit in (laughs) well the thing that kind of struck me the most was so all these body parts were donated so when you would see like a a, like a a figure it's it's like a frankenstein it's been constructed out of multiple donors and stuff oh okay so they're constructing bodies out of multiple well see again imagine if this shit came to life like that's creepy (laughs) as all fuck well there's one flaw that was all about the reproductive organs right and so you're going around and they literally show like, uh, like a, I guess it's like a cross section of, you know, what happens when, you know, a, the penis goes into the vagina. Like it's two kind of cadavers fucking essentially. Um, but the best bit was you go out I of that wonder, room. I wonder, just can I just ask this though? When you're putting together this exhibition, when do you bring up whether we're going to put fucking in it or not? <laughs> Is that like the first idea? Is it like going, here's what I'd love to see in an exhibition. Like I want two cadavers, a dick and a vagina fucking, and then you have to build the rest of the exhibition around it to cover the fact that you just wanted to do that. Or is there a point in the process where someone goes, this is all a bit boring and scientific. (laughs) At some stage, there better be some corpses fucking in this exhibition. 
Well, the way, the way the exhibition works is you start on the top floor and so you literally walk your way down the human body. So you start on the top floor and it's the brain and the skull and then you move down to like the chest and the heart. And so as I got to the stomach, I'm like, oh, I know what's coming next. Well, hang on. <laughs> it's, it's the dirty area. It's the naughty bits. So you go through this exhibition, you go through the section where, the, where they're showing like how babies are made. But then they go into this other room and there's just a little glass case and it's a penis and testes and like a, a vagina, you know, at one end, like just like, like this little dried up dick. And so in my head, I'm like, so everyone donated their body parts to this exhibition. Like who got to be, could you specify I want my dick? Like, you know what I mean? Because I don't know if I want, if I donate my body, I don't want my dick attached to some other body parts. Like just put my dick out on its own. I think that would be like the prime position. Like you want your dick in the glass case, or maybe you don't want your dick in the glass case, but... Yeah, maybe like you're more like, yeah, I'd like my like dick, but I would actually might like my dick on a better body than my body. <laughs> yeah. Could you specify? I'm donating the dick, but I want it sewn to someone's ear. Is that right? Yeah. Is that okay? I'd like the shaft of my penis, but a really fat head. Can you find one of those in the, uh, in yeah. the cooling room? <laughs> I'd like my penis, but I'd like you to sew on someone else's foreskin. That's what I'd like. Yeah. It's a real Frankenschlong. <laughs> well, technically, it was Frankenschlong's monster. So, <laughs> uh, what? Uh, interestingly, talking about the sex stuff. Yeah. One of my fears, not that I think that I have this fear, but I sometimes have this irrational paranoia about. What because human sexuality is such a mystery, right? People are attracted mm -hmm. and turned on by such a myriad of different things. I heard Penn Teller, you know, uh, uh, sorry, Penn no, and Teller, Penn and Teller, what's no. his name? Um, what's uh, it's Penn, uh, Gillette, Penn Gillette, Penn Gillette, that's right, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Penn Gillette, uh, was talking about the fact that he saw someone, uh, a magician's assistants, uh, written on. Like, you know, as mm. in, like, because it was part of the trick, they got a person from the crowd to write on them. And he said, just watching someone being written on for whatever reason, it wasn't something he was ever aware that he found sexy. But the minute he saw it, he was like, oh, God, that's weird. Isn't that weird that there's just a part of my brain that, for whatever reason that I can't quite identify, finds mm. that particular thing that I never would have imagined would be sexy, sexy? I always worry about that for things like this. Like, you know, yeah. I don't want to go and see some Mapplethorpe exhibition and like someone's got some fist up someone's ass and then suddenly you're just like, oh, this is, oh, God, I didn't realize that this was like, and this is what I feel like I'd be like at this ex exhibition. You just hate yeah. to get to that, like, you know, fourth floor down and suddenly be like, oh, oh boy, I didn't realize that I was, oh. <laughs> well, I did hear... There were two English girls behind me and they did look at one of the, uh, one of the figures and was like, oh, that, she's got better breasts than me. <laughs> I'm being body shamed by a corpse. By multiple corpses sewn together. Uh, yeah, so that was cool. And, uh, and so I just, I just, all I did was hang out in Amsterdam for a week. I checked out like the red light district, which was, that was bizarre. Like, what is it like? I don't know what you, well... To me, it felt a bit like, it was like something from Blade Runner or something. The, the thing about Amsterdam that I found, it's, like I said, it's so beautifully, like all the buildings are beautiful, all the squares are beautiful. The city is designed aesthetically really pleasingly. Even their red light district has, like it has a kind of like seedy kind of beauty to it because 
you know, it's still flanking these beautiful canals and all the, all the room, the windows are flanked by these neon red lights. So because it's winter over here, you know, I was going down at night and there'd be a mist. And so it was kind of like you're walking through the set of Blade Runner because you would go past these windows, these neon lights where these gorgeous, and they were like beautiful girls just standing in the window, all in kind of fetishized outfits. Like, you know, there's like the naughty, naughty nurse or like a schoolgirl or whatever, all this kind of stuff. And so the first time I went down there, I got to say, like, I was a little confronted, like, cause everyone passes through there. Like, you know, you'll see like locals cycling their kids through there. It's not a big deal to the locals, but then you do get like the weekend crowd of like, you know, drunk guys on their, on their bucks weekends and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of, the first time I went down there, I sort of moved through all the streets quickly. I felt kind of embarrassed to sort of make eye contact or look in the windows. I was, I was trying to see everything peripherally because I didn't want to be, first of all, I didn't want anyone to think I was there looking to buy. But second of all, like I just, it's the Catholic guilt, you know, I, I expected to be struck down at any moment. <laughs> yeah. I don't want these girls who are intentionally standing uh, in glass windows in provocative clothing to advertise their business to in any way think that I am looking at them. <laughs> The very purpose for which they are standing in those glass windows. So the, then I would go there. Like I've been, I went there a few nights because it was sort of right between my hotel and, you know, where the places I was going. And like on the weekends, it's crazy. Like it's the streets are packed. And but the weird thing is it's, it's quite um, I don't know if it's the weed or what, but it doesn't have that kind of aggro of being like on the Gold Coast on a Saturday night. In fact, I went to a few major cities on this trip. I was in Lisbon uh, on New Year's Eve and I, I had a, the distinct feeling. It's like, this is nothing like Australia when we have these events. Like there was something just a bit more civilized about it or kind of progressive about it. Like, you know, it was because my understanding of the way like the weed works over there is you're not actually allowed to sell weed. You can buy weed, but you can't sell it. And so it's not legal necessarily, but... What, what, did you just say you can buy it, but you can't sell it? That's correct. Like it's legal to buy weed, it's, but it's illegal to sell weed. Michael, can you look up the, the rules on uh, Amsterdam, Amsterdam coffee houses? It, basically, it's the opening monologue from Pulp Fiction. So it's not, it's not actually legal, but if the cops bust you with it, like they just confiscate it, they write you a ticket or whatever. And it's the, 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 the council has just sort of tolerated it. And I think it's the same thing with the prostitution. Firstly, it's legalized and it's regulated and all that kind of stuff. So once it takes away this kind of taboo element, I feel like people who go there, like when you go into these coffee houses and stuff, it's not just like excited teenagers, you know, there's like businessmen and, you know, school teachers and, you know, whatever, like a whole cross-section society, because this is just what they do there. It's like, you go into a coffee house, you smoke weed, you know, they can't serve alcohol in the coffee houses, you know, like they keep those two things separate. Like you still got to be responsible. You can't be a dickhead about it. Um, but it was just, it just sort of made me go, I didn't feel unsafe. Like sometimes when I go out, you know, if it's a Saturday night and you're in the city or whatever, and there's like drunk people everywhere and stuff, you, just part of you is like just a little bit on guard. But I didn't feel that at all, even though I was surrounded by all these kind of like extreme kind of elements. I mean, the only sort of rowdy ones tended to be like, like I said, the big groups are sort of like British, uh, British guys on their Bucks weekends or whatever. But the locals themselves are like totally chill. Um, but the, that red light district on the weekends, it's just... It's teeming. It's crazy because they have music as well. Like it's a, it's, it's weird. It made me just sort of feel like 
a little sheltered, <laughs> I guess. Well, that's the purpose though, right? It, I'll go on. Uh, Michael's got some information here. So hard drugs such as cocaine, LSD, and morphine and heroin are all forbidden in the Netherlands. Soft drugs such as cannabis in all its forms and hallucinogenic mushrooms uh, are legal under the condition of so-called personal use. As a result, smoking of cannabis, even in public, is not prosecuted as well as selling it although technically illegal under the Valued Opium Act, blah, 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 blah. It's widely tolerated, provided that it happens in limited controlled ways, i.e. in coffee houses, small portions, five grand maximum transaction. Not too many portions on stock, only sold to adults, no minors on the premises, no advertisement of drugs. Okay, so yeah, it's like one of those things where, guys, just be chill about it. Just be cool. Don't abuse the rules. Don't go crazy. And I mean, I reckon that's the problem with Australia a lot of the time is that the minority really, really fuck it up. Like we can't be trusted with nice things in Australia because most Mm. people, you know, behave responsibly with all these things. But then there's always just a minority of dickheads who fuck everything up for everybody else. Well, when I was in Portugal, we got a guide around for one of the days, like a city guide. And he was saying that like 10 years ago, Portugal's economy was in the toilet. They had a massive drug problem, like heroin was a huge problem, homeless on the street. And so they took steps to decriminalize it. And now like that city, <clears throat> that's the, of all the places I went to this trip, that was my favorite. Like Lisbon is amazing. It's got all the kind of like culture and stuff of something like Paris, but it's a really friendly, open society. And this dude was saying he reckons that that step, that one small step of decriminalizing the drugs helped everything because it no longer became this criminal issue. So it wasn't tying up cops. Um, people were able to get the help they need. <clears throat> it's still not legal there. Like it's, it's, it's just decriminalized. So, you know, they deal with it in a kind of logical, sensible way. And so they've seen a huge drop in overdoses, drop in teenage use. Like it's, it just seems like sensible kind of policy. <laughs> It's completely sensible. It's ridiculous that we still have a policy whereby, you know, with particularly in Australia with the high rates of drug use, the idea that we are criminalizing just small percentages of it in a way that is never ever going to stop it. You have a mm. massive black economy. If you really wanted to fix the economy, you would at least de- decriminalize it in a way that like stops people going to criminals to go and get this sort of stuff. There'd be processes in place for people to get help. Uh, There'd be less Mm. stigma around it for people who do need help in those situations. There'd be all these sort of benefits to that. It's it's fucking ridiculous, the fact that I was watching... I was watching uh, some ABC TV show and they had footage of people in the city getting busted for pot. And I was like, the fact that you would have a criminal record that you might not be able to travel overseas for something that is legal in a whole bunch of countries and places now is just so crazy to me. Sorry, you, you broke up for a second there. Oh, you watched the right. program. I wasn't, where... re- I wasn't really saying anything interesting. Let's get back to your story. <laughs> Tell me more about Lisbon. <laughs> Uh, uh, i've been at home uh, charlie i've been at home writing my new show and doing fuck all for weeks you've been traveling the world uh you take it from here and i will just sit back and catch up on your life well before we get to lisbon um uh it's worth mentioning going to scotland because uh i have uh i've been to scotland a few times with Gem. obviously that's where her mum lives but I've never done a Scottish winter. So this was like going to be my first white Christmas. And that's the other thing I'd say about my Northern Hemisphere adventure is Christmas is so much more fun when you're in a cold climate. Like 
everything makes sense, like the lights and like all the imagery and stuff. Like it always feels a bit kind of like out of place in Australia to see like reindeers on the beach and stuff like that. Yeah, but when Sa- you're in a Santa's cold- out Santa's outfit is not very practical for Australian summer Christmas conditions. No way, man. And you always see those like cheap ass postcards where it's like Santa on a surfboard wearing like red bull shorts <laughs> or something, and it's just not the same. It's just not the same. But um, yeah, no, so I got to go to Scotland and it was snowing, which was just, that blew my mind. Like I've been to the snow, but I've never been in like, you know, like a, an urban environment when it's snowing. It was so fucking cool. But we stayed at this place because Jem's uh, mum lives in this little country town on the borders. Beautiful little town, Cobblestone Streets, you know, what you'd sort of picture in your head. Um, but they don't have a lot of, you know, tourism or anything like that or much accommodation. But there's this one kind of house you can stay in. It's like a big estate where they rent out the rooms. And my God, it was like stepping into a David Lynch film. Like the, the, the estate itself was just like filled with all this kind of Victorian artwork. And it was like, you know, grandfather clocks and like open fireplaces and stuff. And the staff there were all kind of like these quirky kind of Scottish eccentrics and um, all the, we, like we were the youngest guests here there by at least 30 years. Like everyone was kind of in their seventies. There was one guy who had one arm. There was a woman who was incredibly obese. Look, it took three people to help her stand up from her chair. Like after she'd been dining, like it was just, I was kept looking around for a little like uh, midget to be like dancing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah, well, it sounds to me actually a little bit more like characters in some sort of Agatha Christie style murder mystery that, that you know, that, like that, that you're all kind yeah. of staying in the one hotel and you're all characters and, you know, witnesses or suspects in a murder. Yeah, well, we had this like the one of the, the, the waiters there was this Glaswegian whose accent was so thick, I literally could not understand him. All I knew is he sounded angry all the time <laughs> like whenever you <laughs> ask for a drink or like the time or whatever he would it would take him about a minute to answer and he seemed pissed off all the time it is one of those things with glaswegians they have quite a tough reputation and you do wonder how much of it just comes down to the fact that everything they say sounds aggressive yeah well because Gemma was trying to reassure me she's like no 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 he was just joking around i'm like joking (laughs) like he looked so angry he sounded so angry so we spent Christmas there, which was awesome, and then um, went to Glasgow for a couple of nights, which I'd never been to before. And Glasgow's cool, man. Like, when was it? Have you ever been to Glasgow? Yeah, I've been. Yep. So I've heard, because I've been to Edinburgh a few times, and Edinburgh's very beautiful, very pretty. It's like, you know, out of a, a fairy tale. And I'd always heard that, like, Glasgow was like the tough, you know, the tough uh, sibling to Edinburgh, like all the kind of fancy arty types, you know, who have accents like Sean Connery, Ewan McGregor from Edinburgh, but all like real Scots are Glaswegians. But that city is cool as fuck, man. Like there was so much stuff going on. Um, and it's great because I love Scottish people, but I've always been resistant to kind of more rural Scotland. But to find Scottish people in a big Scottish city, I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> Two things I like. <laughs> You've got big cities here. Great. All right. This can work. <laughs> So we hung out there and we went to, I went to my first session, which is like when they get together and they just play like folk music, you know, they just sort of, I guess it's like a, they jam, but they're all like traditional kind of like, you know, folk songs and anyone who's got an instrument. When you say they all, what do you mean? Like, so like sessions are a thing, like people, you know, it's like a, it's a tradition where you'll go to a pub. Like it's a public session or is it like between like friends? No, not normally in a pub and it's like musicians will get together. But it's kind okay. of fairly free form and stuff. And, you know, you can sit in and 
Um, I think, you know, if you bring an instrument and, you know, you can play it, you can get up and join the band as well. So, it, you know what it felt like? You know that scene in Titanic where, like, you know, um, after they've had the fancy dinner up in first class where, you know, uh, uh, DiCaprio has done his best not to embarrass himself. He, t- he says to Kate Winslet, hey, now do you want to go to a real party? And then they're in, right. like, the bottom class and there's all fiddles and stuff and, like, they're dancing on the tables. That's what it felt like. <laughs> Except I was the only one dancing on the tables and a bunch of angry Glaswegians staring at me. Sit down, you puff. That does seem to be a hard... How does that organise itself? Do you, like, how do people know what songs they're playing? Is there, like... Like, how do people well, know what, when they're allowed to join in? I didn't, I didn't quite get an answer to that. Like, so the session's organised. So it's like knowing that if you go to your pub on a Thursday night, they do live music. So that part's organised. But as far as how the music goes, I couldn't get a clear answer from anyone because I was like is it like jazz where you know someone just plays a note and everyone sits down and noodles over the top and and the answer well what I was told is it's like well no these are kind of standards like there's sort of standard kind of melodies and stuff in in Scottish folk and so these guys are playing those and they can sort of feel where the song's gonna go so I, I guess it's a little bit like jamming but I think there are like you know if you knew folk Scottish folk you'd know what each song was it's not like they're just improvising the whole thing Right, so you can actually, like, if you want to be involved in the the session, but you're only, yeah. like, you know, on early basic sort of fiddle or whatever, you can go home and go, yeah. well, they're going to belt out this song, this song, and this song, and I reckon I can nail yeah. this bit of the fiddle part, yeah. this bit of the fiddle part, and then I can play my kazoo here or whatever, and then go yeah, along Yeah, like, the if session. you can only play the cowbell, and you know they're going to play Don't Fear the Reaper. <laughs> right. Right, you can, you can get up for that song. I guess it's like you're saying, I want to be in an ACDC cover band, but I can only play the bagpipes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at one point I grabbed the mic and just started freestyle rapping over the top. Yeah, Yo, 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 we're in Glasgow. We got a way to go. Don't let yourself flow too low. (laughs) And that's when I got glassed. Which was a compliment in Glasgow, so that's fine. How many people are at this session? How many people are involved versus how many people are watching? Uh, there's about four, uh, I think four at the most. There's like a standard kind of three-piece playing and then four, maybe five guys got up and, and jammed with them. And it's probably about, like it was just a little front bar, so there's probably about, I don't know, 70, 70 odd, but it was packed, 70 odd people. Okay. And it was so much fun. Like, I just, I, I haven't, I don't do things like that very often, like just go watch a band and drink and have fun. It was just like, it was really good. Um, so then, yeah, then we jumped on a train and we uh, went to London for a little bit just as a, a stopover and then uh, flew to, to Lisbon because Jem's dad lives on a boat. He um, bought a boat about five years ago and has just been sailing around the world. And how's boat living? Like, is, is there a, sh- like, is it, I mean, well, I just de- don't depending know. On, depending on how big your boat is. Right, like uh, Roger's got a pretty like modest boat. It's really like a one-person boat, but we made it work. It's like camping essentially. Like you're in a kind of enclosed kind of space. You're sort of using, you know, water from you know like uh, like water from um. You've plugged into the water. You've plugged into electricity. So, I mean, what we were hoping was to actually get on the water for a bit, but this time of the year apparently it's, it's a bit too dangerous out there. It's not it's not very comfortable to be out on the water. And to be honest. I mean, look, I don't mind boats. I've gone on sailing trips before, but, you know, if I don't have to be out 
where there's no visible land, I'm okay. Where there's like things that can eat you just underneath, I'm okay. Yeah, I understand that. Like, I, I mean, I, I quite like the idea of a boat, but I'm not so much like I'm, I would like to spend more time than just going from one place to another on a boat. Well, I, I, I have a strange, not irrational, but it's, it's an unusual fear of being lost at sea. Like if you had to name me like one of my greatest fears, it would be waking up on a raft in the middle of the sea with no idea where land is. For some reason, that is, that, that, the idea of that just terrifies me. I feel like that I just would die really quickly in that scenario. Like, I just feel like if I was on a raft in the middle of the ocean with no drinking water and like hot sun, I feel like my body would just go, well, I can see how this is going. There would be no will to fight. There would no, be no will to live. I would just literally lie down and I would like, you know, probably shut my eyes and I reckon my body would just go, all right, <laughs> we're done. That'll, that'll do, pig. That'll do. I feel kind of the same way. I think there'd be a fair bit of anger. I'd be looking for someone to blame for how I got into this predicament, which would be very frustrating because I'm in the middle of the ocean, there's no one around, but it would take me a long time to accept the circumstances. I don't think at any time I'd attempt to save myself, kind of like you, I'm like, well, now what's the point? But I think I would rage for a bit. I would yell probably at the ocean. I'd probably cry, I think. Um, Maybe try and kill myself to end things quicker. Like maybe, I don't know, entice a shark up, something like that. What's the best way to go? Yeah. Drowning would be the best way to go, I right? think. I, th- I think I'd just be like, ah, oh, alone at last. If only I had my <laughs> podcast to listen to, <laughs> this would actually be quite pleasant. Um, I guess, I don't know what the worst way to, I, I guess like you don't want to get killed by a shark really. I mean, Eden. I guess that's the glorious way to go, but I, I think I just want my body to gently shut down. That's what I would like. Yeah. But I don't know if you could make that happen. Like I think, uh, I mean, I, I'd like to believe that you can become one with the force just through, uh, you know, sheer power of your mind, <laughs> but I think that you'd, you'd, cause you're either going to die of like exposure, dehydration, or I guess yeah, shark attack. So what's the? I mean, there are some shitty options. Yeah, I guess you're right. Like I don't you could, think any of them. Just drown yourself. Just go. Just jump off the raft. Take a big gulp. It'll all be over soon. Shh, shh. I'd be stroking my own head as I did it. Shh. Just be quiet now. You go to the sleep, Charlie. You're the right, longest Charlie. sleep. You're right, Charlie. Just shh. drown. Just drown. Just take your sweet relief. <laughs> <laughs> and remember if you need help yeah exactly we'll, we'll have the lifeline number at the end of the podcast oh sorry yeah no no um uh, i do wonder sometimes whether I, like my body has that will to fight it's like you know sometimes when there's turbulence on a plane i really mm. do just think oh yeah okay well i've lived well i'd like it to be over quickly I think that in every horror film, like in every horror film where the hero's got to muster up that one last, you know, effort to defeat the bad guy. Like in Aliens, I always think about that. Like Ripley makes it back to the ship. She's got Newt. Everything seems okay. Then Bishop's torn in half and the mother comes out. At that point, I'd just be like, oh, fucking come on. (laughs) Like, did you see what I just did? I went back into level six of the compound. I fought off every single one of your foot soldiers. I found you. I got her back up. Managed to get back on the ship before the planet exploded. And now you're going to do this shit to me? All right, fucking kill me. Sorry, you. Fucking kill me. I could not agree with you more. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, what I was going to say is we need to wrap this up because uh, you've got yeah. low bandwidth and things to do. Um, one thing we should uh, talk about, though, before we go um, is this little uh, thing that's come into my feed lately about uh, Tofot merchandise. Mm, mm, mm. Yep. Now, long story short, um, James Fosdyke, who does all our amazing artwork and uh, uh, you can get T-shirts and posters and all this kind of stuff, um, basically he's been having his work ripped off um, by a company. Now, probably don't want to mention the company's name because I think if we just direct people to where they can go for genuine uh, Tofop and Dollop and Weekly Planet merchandise, it's Redbubble, right? Yeah, Redbubble, that's where James's stuff is. That's where he gets the money for it. If you are not buying it from Redbubble, that it has been stolen, uh, somebody else has stolen his uh, stuff and he's getting money for that stolen stuff and it is not going to James and none of it is coming back to us either. So Redbubble is the place. Uh, that you want to go for any of the Tofop merch, any of uh, the stuff from my shows, because James does all my posters and all the stuff from my stand-up shows, uh, any of the stuff from the Weekly Planet. A whole bunch of podcasts have had their art, uh, not just James's, by the way, other artists as well, but obviously in relation to our podcast, James is the one who does all the great work for us. So if you are buying Tofop merch of any kind, make sure you buy it from Redbubble because that's where James's stuff is. And here's the thing, is, is this company, in order for James to uh, get his artwork taken down, he has to fill out a form or lodge a complaint to explain like, why his work has been stolen. It's absolute bullshit. So the best thing you can do, like Will says, is go to Redbubble. If you want to support us, you want to support James, go to Redbubble to get all that merch. Yeah, and there's heaps of merch there too. It's actually a huge range. It's not just T-shirts and stuff. You can get mugs and all sorts of interesting things printed and made at Redbubble. So it's actually a really cool place to kind of go and design what format you want the merch to be in and what it is that you would like rather than us saying, hey, we've got a range of T-shirts or hey, we put out some mugs. You can actually yeah. go, well, I'd like a mug and yeah, you have the facility to go and you know kind of arrange that and do that. Yeah, it's do-it-yourself merchandise. Well, not completely yourself. James is involved. Well, it's and it's like Red when Bubble you used to get, get those little cl uh, kiss transfers. You could iron onto your T-shirt when you were a kid. Yeah, yeah. We'll James will send you a transfer. You've got to go to Redbubble and then James <laughs> will send you a transfer and then you'll get your mum to iron it onto a T-shirt she bought at a shop. <laughs> uh, you got some shows to promote, Will. Uh, yeah, uh, I, look, I am on uh, tour. Uh, uh, Will Eagle is the name of the tour. I'm currently doing uh, work in progress shows uh, up north, uh, Byron Bay region at the Brunswick Picture House, which is a beautiful venue in Brunswick Heads. Um, uh, but uh, Adelaide is the first stop on the official tour. I will be doing the Adelaide Fringe. That is selling really, really quickly. I'm doing fewer shows than usual in Adelaide this year, um, and they are selling quicker than ever. So I would say if you're in Adelaide, uh, get in quick if you want good tickets to come and see that. Uh, then I'm off to the Brisbane Comedy Festival, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Uh, come out in Melbourne, of course. Uh, always love. It's my biggest and favourite festival in the world. Uh, Perth Comedy Festival. Sydney will be later in the year. There'll be other dates. But um, willanderson.com.au or comedy.com.au and uh, follow the links there to find out if I'm coming to where you are. Uh, and I wasn't able to promote this before our break, but uh, Wolf Creek Series 2 is out on stand right now. I think it's been out for about a month or so. Uh, people seem to like it. Um, it's not like, it's not, it's not probably like the, the, the most, uh, uh, it's not the kind of entertainment you'd sit down for, for, for a, a, a lot, light laugh. It's, it's not Tofop-esque, but um, you'll see a Tofop member in there. Uh, well, here's what I will say about it is um, Amy's watched, I think, maybe even all of it. Um, I've watched the first couple of episodes so far 
And uh, there's definitely um, some great humor in the early episodes anyway, for, as far as I've seen. Yeah, there's a little bit of humor amongst all the, you know, the, the impending violence and darkness. Um, and... I just don't know if your relationship's going that well, Charlie, so far. <laughs> I just feel like if I was going to give you some advice, I just feel like you and your missus are having some troubles that I just don't feel like it's going to end well in some way. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where it's going. Maybe it'll have a happy ending and you guys will both, you know, work it out and everything's going to be yeah. fine for your story arc. I don't know. I don't have any spoilers. I'm looking forward to finding out if you crazy kids can work it out and everything's <laughs> going to be okay. It turns into a musical in the last two episodes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I think that's it. I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Anderson.